Its merely plot-driven depictions of its residents converges with Lee's merely functional direction to flatten Les Miserables into the undistinguished style of conventionally apolitical and socially indifferent conventional crime dramas. That's Richard Brody of The New Yorker, a bit of a mouthful there, about Les Miserables, one of the films we're reviewing this week, as we are nearing... That's right, we're just 10 days away from the Academy Awards. It's time to really ramp up our awards coverage. So, of course, we get you covered here on Cinephile. It is the Foreign Film Podcast. Yes, woohoo, let's get fired up. I'm reviewing three films that are Academy Award nominated for Best Foreign Film. Or Mount Rushmore is going to be the best foreign films of all time. We've got for Total Recall, looking back, a really good year in cinema. 1996 was the Oscars, so uh, 1995 movies. And, of course, uh, all of us still affected by the news about Kobe Bryant. For new listeners to the podcast, I'm going to replay a couple years ago my story of meeting Kobe Bryant right after he won the Oscar, along with my dear friend and producer, Dan Stanzik, who actually asked Kobe a question. He was number 24. How about that? Of all those to ask Kobe a question. So we're going to, in honor of Kobe Bryant's tragic death, replay a previous portion of Cinephile after Kobe won that Academy Award. As always, we appreciate you checking us out. Please do give us some love on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe, rate, and review. You never know who's going to be listing. We've got the you know the standard old guard, Adam Amin, Alpha Hillwan, Claire Atkins, Dan Stanzik, my brother's Ishan. Now, they're, they're locked in. But how about the fact my eldest son, Yusuf, is basketball coach. Brett Carrick is now listening. I appreciate that. We've got Mitch Green and Will Folger, my MLB Network people. So I'm glad that the word is spreading. Please do help us out. And Coach, sorry about Yusuf's lackadaisical jump shot. As far as the movies themselves, before we get into all of that, I feel like a marathon runner here, except rather than actually running a marathon, I'm just sitting on my couch and just divulging and devouring movies. After I just watched Richard Jewell last week, my marathon is complete. I've now seen every Academy Award-nominated film for this year's Oscars 10 days away when it comes to the following categories. Best Picture, all nine of those I had seen when the nominations were announced. But the one hole in the resume, 19 of 20 nominated performances for actors, supporting actor, actress, and supporting actress. The one I hadn't seen was Kathy Bates and Richard Jewell. So I had to, to seek that out. But after seeing that, my masterpiece is complete. So I will be so locked in for the Oscars with our coverage here on Cinephile. I've seen every single nominee for, like I said, Best Picture, Best Actor, Best Actress, Best Supporting Actor, Best Supporting Actress, Best Production Design, Best Original Score, Best Cinematography, Best Costume Design, Best Editing, Best Sound Editing, Best Sound Mixing, Best Visual Effects, Best Original Screenplay, and Best Adapted Screenplay. Joe, this is amazing how many of these categories. I've seen every single nominee. How, how are your eyes right now? All the- <laughs> All that blue I got at least light. done a couple of years ago, but I feel like you're right. There, I need to put some eye drops in them right now. I'm just getting weary by fatigue. Um, all the I, I don't know if I said best foreign films. I've seen all five best foreign films as we were reviewing documentaries. I've only seen three of the five. I say only, so maybe we'll we'll try to squeeze in a couple more of those before we get into the reviews of the films this week. I wanted to read this for all of you. Uh, an interesting little piece here by Stephen Galloway in the Hollywood Reporter. What is the most profitable movie ever? If you could put money into any one movie, which would you choose? Looking at return on investment, 1999's The Blair Witch Project and 2007's Paranormal Activity would be two great picks. Blair Witch costs less than $500,000 to make, including post, after a $35,000 shoot, and earned $249 million globally. Paranormal cost $215,000 and made $193 million at the box office, not adjusted for inflation. But if you look at sheer size, 2009's Avatar, $2.8 billion worldwide off a production and marketing budget of $387 million. And of course, Titanic, $210 million budget, not adjusted for inflation, 
and the film made $2.2 billion. But the biggest hit of all time, according to Guinness World Records, you want to take a guess, Joe? Oh, boy. I am drawing a blank. What is it? Gone with the Wind, 1939. Whoa. 83 years since its release. That film, $4.25 million film, has grossed something like $3.44 billion in inflation-adjusted dollars. However, Mr. Galway then says, we you got to look at Star Wars, because 1977 Star Wars has spawned an empire that has so far earned $10.2 billion at the box office, not adjusted for inflation, from 12 released films, costing an average of $141 million each, and another $42 billion in merchandise. So if you want to go that route, the original Star Wars cost only $11 million to make, and another $16.5 million to market. That is about as profitable as it gets. Isn't that crazy how, how big those juggernaut movies were? Yeah, and the fact that it's still going, too. And now I think they're doing another trilogy with a different director and a different plot line and all that. So it's just going to keep going forever and ever, it seems. Yeah, what George Lucas wrought, it is crazy. All right, let's dive into some movies, including Les Miserables. Here's the good news, folks. It's not Jean Valjean and another reimagining of the musical. That's why I was hesitant after getting the screener. I said, do I really have to sit through another version of Les Miserables? Do I not get the joy of laughing at Russell Crowe singing? And um, seeing Anne Hathaway win an Oscar. No, no, this is something different. The title is Les Miserables, but the story is much different. It is about Stefan, who has recently joined the anti-crime squad in Montfermy. That's a sensitive district of the Paris projects. Paired up with Chris and Guada, whose methods are sometimes unorthodox, he rapidly discovers the tensions between the various neighborhood groups. When the trio finds themselves overrun during the course of arrest, a drone begins filming every move they make. So why the hell is it called Les Miserables? Because... Where uh, the author, what's his name, Hugo, where he wrote the uh, acclaimed piece was at that school where the uh, the whole movie takes place. That's interesting. I was like, oh, okay. And even even the uh, main character, Stefan, he gets quizzed by the other guys. Hey, do you know why they call him as Robert? Like, oh, yeah, it's because that's where, you know, Victor Hugo wrote him as Robert. Okay, very smart guy here. Yeah. So it's like, you know, going to JFK school, John F. Kennedy school. Okay, I was named for JFK here. That's where he went to school, et cetera, et cetera. So it has nothing to do literally with Les Rob, but... Tangentially, in some ways, you know, that story is about the, the, the lower class and trying to rise up and all the rest of it. So this is from Laj Lee, the director who actually grew up in this area, so clearly knows of what he speaks. And it's a very good film. I'm giving it three maple leaves. And the best way with foreign films is that you can make them accessible. Like Parasite's a very accessible film. Even though it's a foreign film, you got to read the subtitles. You know, you don't have to catch every word of dialogue to understand what's happening. It's such a visual feast for the eyes. Roma is a very inaccessible film as far as foreign films are concerned. It was very laborious and, and just dialogue heavy and not very captivating, at least for me. And, uh, of course, the Academy disagreed by giving it Best Director and nominating for Best Picture. But the good news is, in terms of foreign films, Les Miserables is accessible. And there was one review from The Guardian comparing it to Do the Right Thing. I said, oh my God, you're comparing this to one of the greatest American films of all time. And it's not that. I don't even really think the Do the Right Thing is uh, applicable. The label, when I think Do the Right Thing, I think, okay, well, this is about a you know microcosm for America, and it's about this one neighborhood, Bed-Stein. you got 10 different disparate characters all coalescing together. Well, this isn't that. This is a lot more like Training Day. This is how I would describe it, the French Training Day. That's Les Miserables. It's about you know the cop, the Ethan Hawke character is played by Damien Bernard, so he's a straight arrow, just wants to get things done. But then he's paired up with a couple of guys in this instance, rather than just one character in Denzel, it's two guys. And both these guys clearly are cops who have no issue pushing the envelope. In, in particular, Chris, who's played by Alexis Menenti, and props to uh, 
I believe it was Mick LaSalle, the critic out of San Francisco, who said that the actor looks like a young Vladimir Putin, which is very funny. You won't be able to watch the movie now without thinking of that. But brutal hair, like just it's falling apart. And he's just, he looks like Putin. And this, this guy's idea of fun, literally they're driving past a bus stop. And he tells Guada to pull over. And he goes over, and it's a couple of high school girls, and he just starts harassing the girl to ask her what's on her phone, and, you know, if she's smoking a joint. And it's like, well, who cares, man? And then she's like, you know, you have no right to do this. And he's like, I can do whatever I want. I can stick my finger up your ass. And I'm like, okay, this is the kind of guy that we're talking about here. Clearly, not a good dude. That's 10 minutes into the movie as he breaks her phone and breaks the friend's phone as he tries to take a video of it. So our friend Stefan knows he's in tight here, and the issue with Les Miserables is they're trying to take care of this neighborhood and the various tensions and these kids who are... I don't want to quite say it's gang violence because it's, you know, I, want, I don't want to think it's like the south side of Chicago, but clearly these are poverty-stricken streets and these kids are clearly up to no good and you're re- relying on other groups, including the Muslim Brotherhood, to try to police the area. And so early on, you know, you've got these, these characters in the mosque who are talking to these kids, telling them to come by the mosque, you know, we'll look out for you, give you some food, whatever, whatever. And so the cops are kind of in cahoots with these guys to make sure that they can, they can run things. However, then there is a crime that takes place and you think it's a person who's been abducted, but it's actually a tiger. It's from a group of like strong men, tough guy criminals who have a tiger as part of their act. Did not expect that twist coming. And now all of a sudden you start to see the tensions in the neighborhood start to rise between this group of the strong men, tough guy, wise guy criminals. And then you've got the Muslim Brotherhood. And of course, you've got these street urchins. These young kids are being bullied by these cops and are looking to rise up. So it is a familiar story, I think, if you've seen, you know, if you've seen one cop thriller, you've seen them all. But I thought it was an effective way of showing this particular area in France. If you think of uh, the classic uh, expression, you know, to make something universal, you have to make it specific. So to make this a a police story that can resonate everywhere, um, you know, it really captures the details of what's happening in France right now. In fact, the story even begins with France winning the World Cup and how that unites everyone. You know, you think of the classic Frenchman with a pencil mustache, smoking cigarettes and crushing red wine. Well, that's not the case anymore. France has become a lot more diversified and, you know, a lot more immigrants there now. And the whole complexion of the country has changed. But that means that within that melting pot, you do get more tension and more brushback, etc., so the story builds up, and as you can see, the tension is rising. And then the final 10 minutes, I think, in particular, is excellent. As a, you, know, you have a real uprising here from the kids, and the cops are in serious trouble. And the last uh, shot is fantastic. It ends in an open-ended uh, moment, which I will not reveal. So I'm going to give it three minute beliefs. The easiest way to describe it would be, like I said, the French training day. Um, another review from Anne Hornaday of Washington Post with Les Miserables. Lee delivers a passionate protest on behalf of an entire generation whose future has largely been foreclosed. You know, he's tipping his hand here. Clearly, he's looking towards the downtrodden, these forgotten kids here living in the slums. What future do they have, especially when the cops who are trying to police them are as corrupt as they get? Les Miserables, three-way police, Joe. The training day for uh, French audiences. I love that comparison so much. The training day for French audiences. I also like what you said about how this movie just showcases and highlights the diversity in France now. It's not something that I think a lot of Americans realize that that this is kind of the case there. So, yeah, very excited to see it. Yeah, I think, like I said, it's an accessible movie. Here's one I don't think is as accessible, and that's Corpus Christi. It's a story of a 20-year-old Daniel who experiences a spiritual transformation while living in a youth detention center. He wants to become a priest, But this is impossible because of his criminal record. When he is sent to work at a carpenter's workshop in a small town, on arrival he dresses up as a priest and accidentally takes over the local parish. The arrival of the young charismatic preacher is an opportunity for the local community to begin the healing process 
after a tragedy that happened there. I, I think ultimately this is an uneven film. I, I like what the filmmaker is going for, Jan Kamasa, and is trying for some different things. Um, but I think what ends up happening is that you're, you're trying to combine different elements. So let me begin with this. Uh, generally, films about religion, you know, specifically in Hollywood, they're, they're generally shown as corrupt characters. Right? You think of Burt Lancaster and Elmer Gantry. That's one of the reasons why I love Robert Duvall's The Apostle so much, because that was a really incredible film. And Duvall gave a real tour de force performance. It clearly came from his heart in the fact that I think he co-wrote it, he directed it, he produced it, and obviously starred in it and had an Academy Award nomination. Should have won Best Actor. But, you know, he was playing this priest who is not without sin. Of course, he has a terrible tragedy, which is his fault. But he's a well-meaning, God-fearing man, and it really was just a, just a firebrand performance by Duvall. And so when you see other films about religion, generally it's always like, okay, it's something very serious, of course, like Spotlight, which is detailing the abuse of the Catholic Church and so on and so forth, which is one of the reasons why I really enjoyed The Two Popes. Previous guest, Scott Feinberg, called it the best picture of 2019 because it's about a couple of religious characters and it humanizes them, but at the same time shows that their hearts are in the right place. There's this battle between modernity and tradition and trying to pass that along to people and where does God fit in in today's society? And it was a very spiritual film. So in the case of Corpus Christi, you know, with world cinema, I think they do a better job in terms of stories of faith. I mean, clearly you can look at the films of Ingmar Bergman and you can see spirituality is, is present throughout. But in Corpus Christi, he's trying to meld those spiritual themes with a surreal grittiness of like a crime drama. You know what I mean? Like this guy comes out of the gate and you just see him getting his butt kicked. And he's clearly a very violent character. And he's being told by this, you know, the guy who runs the detention center, hey, listen, you're getting out of here. But I know that, you know, you found God and you want to become a different person. And then the next shot, bam, he's slamming this girl from behind in the bathroom. He's getting high doing coke. Like, okay, clearly uh, he's not quite on the path to divinity. He is still still very much uh, a man of the world fighting his own demons and past. But, you know, when he gets sent to go to that carpenter's workshop, it's amazing how easily they think he's a priest because he just shows up in the church and he clearly doesn't look like it. And the actor himself, by the way, is excellent. Bartosz Bileni, I believe, is the guy who plays Daniel. I mean, he's got this just... I was texting with Keith Law about it. He's got this haunted look on his face. He's just so gaunt. He's got these blue eyes that are just so hollow. But he's sitting there in the church, and the woman, you know, actually laughs when he says he's the new priest. He's like, come on, like, look at you. You look like, you know, like some young thug. But he has, like, you know, the collar in his backpack, and so very quickly, okay, well, who's going who's to carry around the collar of a priest unless they actually were somebody you know, who is a priest. So he uh, eventually takes over and is very charismatic and he's reading scripture, but at the same time, he's got this pull here of being somebody who's, you know, got this very bad past and he's, you know, falling in love with all the girls there and she's like, and then even, you know, there's one scene smoking weed with a bunch of guys. Like, hang on a second, how is this preacher smoking weed with the locals at his church? And he's like, oh, it's from the earth, you know, it's not a big deal. And you're like, okay, I don't know how anybody else wouldn't, wouldn't catch up to what this is going on here. Um, and then the story goes uh, in a fairly predictable path towards the end. But, it certainly was visceral and had its moments that were very pungent. So I will give it two and a half maple leaves. Corpus Christi, a preacher or a wannabe preacher trying to do the right thing but being pulled down by his past. It's one of the nominees for Best Foreign Film. Here's a couple of reviews. Uh, this is from David Rooney of Hollywood Reporter. Not quite a religious experience, but original and absorbing. Peter DeBruge of Variety writes, The result makes for a powerful, deservedly Oscar-nominated drama and a launching pad for fresh-to-American audiences, young actor Bartosz Bilenia in the soul-contorting lead role. Also, Leslie Felpern of Guardian, often moving but also disquieting and even intermittently funny. This drama unfurls a spiritual parable that is uniquely Polish, 
but accessible to all. I'm giving it two and a half maple leaves. I don't know if Lech Walenza would approve of this, but in terms of great Polish films, it doesn't quite reach. I mean, listen, one of the greats, Krzysztof Kieślowski, you know, his work was incredible, particularly the Decalogue or the, the Red, Blue, White and Trilogy. But Corpus Christi, Joe, giving it two and a half maple leaves, yet another foreign film nominated for an Oscar this year. It sounds like you agree with kind of what uh, David Rooney of The Hollywood Reporter said, where he said it's not quite a religious experience, but it's original and absorbing. So it's good enough to be nominated, but it's not your front runner. I'm taking it. Exactly. And the film that is definitely not my front runner, the worst of the three that I saw as far as the best foreign films, and in fact, the worst of the five nominated, it actually set Academy Award history. It's nominated not only for best foreign film, but also best documentary. This has never happened before in the history of the Oscars. And that film is called Honeyland. A woman utilizes ancient beekeeping traditions to cultivate honey in the mountains of Macedonia. When a neighboring family tries to do the same, it becomes a source of tension as they disregard her wisdom and advice. This is from a couple of directors, Tamara Kodvetska and Lujomir Stefanov. And it's about as boring as it sounds. If I said you, this isn't me, but a beekeeper, you say, listen, there's been one great film about a beekeeper, and that was the late Peter Fonda and Yuli's Gould from Victor Nunez incredible 1997 independent gem which is about a man fighting for redemption and the beekeeping is a metaphor for the fact that he keeps the bees at bay he's got these troubled kids and and yet he is the the voice of calm within the reason it's the closest peter fond ever came to playing his father in a movie yuli's gold is unbelievable honeyland unfortunately is not that kath clark of guardian writes honeyland really is a miraculous feat shot over three years as if by invisible camera not a single furtive glance is directed towards the filmmakers that is the most impressive part of it the fact it's shot in north macedonia and i mean there's no narration it's literally just a camera observing this woman who's just i mean she's got like four teeth I mean, 59 years old, weathered, leathered face. She's looking after her mother. I mean, in many ways, she's a heroic character, Hatizi Moratova. But there's just a complete absence of narrative drive. I mean, you see her literally cultivating a bunch of bees. You see her getting these, like, just chunks of honey, giving it to one of the kids. You're just, just chomping on honey. Cavity's waiting to happen. Like, where's the Crest commercial? And then all of a sudden, this new family comes in. They got a bunch of kids, and they've got some issues. And all of a sudden, you got some tension between the two of them. But the tension isn't nearly enough to sustain the film. It's 85 minutes. And again, I applaud it for showing a different side of life. I mean, this is a bucolic lifestyle of a bunch of farmers getting the best honey that one could imagine in Macedonia. But that does not make for entrancing television for 85 minutes. Ty Burr, who's a great film critic for Boston Globe, says, Grave and wise, Honeyland is ultimately an act of faith, and the filmmakers extend the idea of balance all the way to the film's implicit moral. Uh, Marlo Stern of The Daily Beast, What begins as a quaint, verite portrait evolves into something far greater, a monument to the human spirit. And finally, Michael O'Sullivan of Washington Post, the film by Tamara Kotevska and Lubomir Stefanov is a strange and curious thing. Part fly-in-the-wall anthropology, part ecological fable. If that sounds boring, it is. It's 85 <laughs> minutes, but I cannot in good conscience recommend Honeyland. I'll give it two Maple Leafs because it's so different, and I recognize what the filmmakers had to go through was something miraculous and astonishing. And the fact it's nominated for Best Documentary and Best Foreign Film, to me, that's worthy enough. I cannot in good conscience say, Joe Engelbrecht, you got to sit down and watch Honeyland tomorrow. Too many beliefs for me. I'm surprised to hear you say that, given all the hype that it had coming out of Sundance. And like you said, Best uh, Foreign Picture and Best Documentary. But I guess I'll just be watching 2007's The Bee Movie with Jerry <laughs> Seinfeld instead.
about to say, Seinfeld did a better job. By the way, I, I covered the BBWAA this past Saturday, Baseball Writers Association of America. And sure enough, on the dais, you know, they're honoring the best players in baseball, MVP, Cy Young, Manager of the Year. And up on that dais was Jerry Seinfeld. I mean, I almost fainted. The guy's a giant Mets fan. He wanted to go just to honor Pete Alonso, as Joe knows, is a baseball fan, Rookie of the Year for the Mets, 53 home runs. Dude, I, I, I didn't get a chance to talk to Seinfeld, but I... I can't tell you how close I was to the dais. And he did a four-minute speech. I'll text it to you. It's hysterical. <laughs> Jerry Seinfeld, the biggest star in the entire place. It was awesome. Every, every sportscaster there was excited to see him. All right. Those are your reviews. Uh, coming up next, entertainment news. We now know who the huge frontrunner is for the Academy Awards. Not only Best Picture, but also Best Director. And also some entertainment news involving the Grammys and Billie Eilish. Duh. All right, entertainment news, including the Directors Guild of America Awards recap. This is huge. All right, you know, my man Mitch Green is calling me out saying I've cooled on the Irishman. I've not cooled on the Irishman. I believe the Irishman should win every single damn award out there. I mean, it should win 10 Academy Awards, but I'm a realist. You know, it has a greater chance of doing what Gangs of New York did, 10 Academy Award nominations and went 0 for 10. And it's not going to win Best Director. Even though Martin Scorsese deserves his second Academy Award, it's going to go to Sam Mendes. The DGA awarding their best director theatrical feature film to Sam Mendes for 1917. And generally speaking, I did get a DM from somebody, anonymous source, asking, does best director always line up with best picture? Well, it doesn't always. I mean, Ben Affleck wasn't even nominated for Argo, but then Argo won best picture. But yes, previous to like that, the last 10 years, best picture lined up pretty well with best director. Now it's not as much, right? Barry Jenkins can win best picture for Moonlight, but Damien Chazelle wins best director for La La Land. So this doesn't mean that now 1917 is going to win best picture. Does it help? Absolutely. And is Mendes now the clear-cut frontrunner for best director? Yes, he is. He wins the DGA. He wins the Golden Globe. Now he's got the edge over Bong Joon-ho for Parasite. The five nominees were Mendes, Bong Joon-ho, Scorsese, Tarantino, and Taika Waititi for Jojo Rabbit, who is not actually nominated for best director. I wish he had been ahead of... Uh, Todd Phillips for Joker. Also, first-time feature film went to Alma Harrell for Honey Boy. That's nice to see, although I was pulling hard for Joe Talbot, the last black man in San Francisco. Of course, we've had Joe on the podcast. Documentary feature film, what do you think one? Well, it wasn't Honeyland, thank God. It was Stephen Bogner and Julia Riker for American Factory, which I, previewed, uh, which I reviewed rather previously on Cinephile. Uh, in terms of dramatic series, best directing went to Nicole Cassell for Watchmen. Love seeing comedy series Bill Hader winning for Ronnie Lilly, one of the more shocking episodes of the entire show, and it's very funny and very different. Bill Hader actually won a Best Director Award for that. Um, reality TV was encore, all right, who cares, yeah. Uh, movies for television, Chernobyl wins, expected that, did very well. So those are your nominees. But big news here, Joe, 1917. Everybody listening, if you haven't seen it, you want to be up to date on the Oscars, you better go see it, because Sam Mendes is going to win his second Best Director Oscar after winning 20 years ago for American Beauty. Yeah, lock it in now. And to everyone out there, watch it on a big screen. Don't do it at home or on your laptop. Yeah. Um, to more entertainment news, the Oscars are rigged for white people. That's not me saying it. That's Stephen King. Unbelievable. Just throwing it out there. He, he wrote on January 14th, as a writer, I'm allowed to nominate in just three categories, Best Picture, Best Adapted Screenplay, and Best Original Screenplay. For me, the diversity issue did not come up. That said, I would never consider diversity in matters of art. Only quality. It seems to me that to do otherwise would be wrong. 
People refer to it as an incredibly tone-deaf tweet in light of the striking lack of diversity on display in this year's nominees. Once again, only one person of color in the acting nominees. That was Cynthia Erivo for Harriet. And so King sought to clarify his comments in follow-up tweets. The most important thing we can do as artists and creative people is make sure everyone has the same fair shot, regardless of sex, color, or orientation. Right now, such people are badly underrepresented, and not only in the arts. You can't win awards if you're shut out of the game. He elaborated in a new op-ed in the Washington Post in which he declared the Oscars are still rigged in favor of white people. In a nod to his offending tweets, he says he stands by his assertion that judgments of creative excellence should be blind but acknowledges that could only be the case in a perfect world where the game isn't rigged in favor of the white folks. Voters are supposed to look at all films in serious contention. This year, that would be about 60. There's no way of checking how many voters actually do because viewing is on the honor system. How many of the older, whiter contingent actually saw Harriet about Harriet Tubman or the last black man in San Francisco? Just asking the question. If they did see all the films, were they moved by what they saw? Did they feel the catharsis? That's the basis of all that artists aspire to. Did they understand? Joe, your thoughts on the, the master of horror? I see his point, uh, and I, I understand what his original tweet was. But, I, th- I mean, you know, I think that in an ideal world, like he said, these works should go off their own merit. But it's not the case. And traditionally with the Oscars, it's always been hashtag Oscars so white. So I think that until there's more diversity in the industry as a whole, we're just going to keep getting these same kind of Oscar nominations with white people all the time. Yeah. If you don't have them as part of the Academy, like you said, it's tough to include them. You're not just going to have an accurate reflection of what's happening in movies. Here's great news, though. Bong Joon-ho plans to make a six-hour-long film for Parasite HBO The Limited Series. I mean, this is awesome. Currently in talks, he told the rap Sharon Waxman, I had all these ideas accumulated from when I started writing the script. I just couldn't include all those ideas in the two-hour running time of the film, so they're all stored in my iPad. And my goal with this limited series is to create a six-hour-long film. For example, when the original housekeeper, Mun Guang, comes back in the late night, something happened to her face. Even her husband asked about it, but she never answered. I know why she had the bruises on her face. I have a story for that. And aside from that, why does she know the existence of this bunker? What relationship does she have with that architect to know this bunker? So I have all these hidden stories that I've stored. He'll serve as an executive producer of the HBO adaptation alongside succession producer Adam McKay. Talks are ongoing. Creative details have not been fully worked out, including whether or not the potential project would be in English or Korean. But if you loved Parasite as I did, I can't wait to see a six-hour film. I'm just curious, Joe, do you think it starts like it's just its, its own piece or is it picking up from where Parasite left off? My guess is that it's its own six-hour individual film. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that it's its own thing that where he elaborates on these stories that he had during the movie. But I'm all for it, and I'm a huge fan of Succession and Adam McKay's work. So, yeah, once it comes out, everyone watch it. It's going to be great. Nice. Yay for Brian Cox. And one more bit of news here before we get to Kobe Bryant. Billie Eilish becoming the second artist ever to sweep the top Grammy categories. She actually ran out of people to thank as she took the stage to accept the Grammy for Record of the Year for Bad Guy. Duh. Saying simply thank you in unison with her brother and producer, Phineas. 18 years old, second artist ever to sweep the four general categories of record of the year, song of the year, album of the year, and best new artist at the awards in one night. The first in nearly four decades after Criss Cross. No, no, not Criss Cross. After Christopher Cross in 1981. Adele also has Grammys for each award from separate ceremonies, but... When Eilish accepted Best New Artist, she thanked her touring team, who she forgot in her Song of the Year speech, then turned her attention to her fans, 
who may or may not be called avocados. The good news is if you miss somebody in a speech, Joe, when you win four times, you can get a quick chance to make it up to them. Yeah, exactly. I think by the end of the last award, I'm just thinking, you know, the train conductor for getting me to the ceremony at that point. You know what I mean? If you're that talented, you get that many chances, you can thank everyone. <laughs> Tough night for Ariana Grande, but great night for Billie Eilish. And a couple moments I love. I love seeing Smokey Robinson get out there, sing a little My Girl a cappella. People forget Smokey, who is a brilliant artist in his own right, actually wrote My Girl, uh, which The Temptations made famous. And I love seeing Trombone Shorty. I mean, with the New Orleans Preservation Hall band, phenomenal. I mean, they just playing at an in-memoriam, Trombone Shorty, so good. A couple of notable moments for me from the Grammys. Joe, were you locked into the Grammys? I, I was locked in for a part of it, but I didn't see all of the performances. I at least try to catch every performance that happens at the Grammys each year. But yeah, it was it was great. I know that it was one of the lower rated Grammys of the past few years. So we'll, we'll see if they can turn it around in the coming years. And of course, there was tributes to Kobe Bryant, Alicia Keys, Boys to Men as well. Uh, that news still reverberating around here. And uh, coming up next on Cinephile... When Kobe Bryant won an Academy Award, it was one of the greatest moments of his life, and I got to experience it with him 10 minutes after he won. My conversation with him and my old friend Dan Stanzik, next on Cinephile. Listen, no bigger moment. Kobe Bryant won an Oscar, okay, for sports fans here. And Dan Stanzik, our producer, asked the question of the night. Go ahead, Dan. Yeah, so I'm in the interview room, and they told us beforehand, if there's someone you know you want to ask a question to, come up to the moderator and let her know that you want to be put on the list. So as soon as Kobe wins for Dear Basketball Best Animated Short, I run up to her and I say, I'd love to ask Kobe a question. I'm Dan Stanzik, ESPN Radio. She says, okay, fine. So I sit down, Kobe finally comes to the room, and she's like, obviously there are a ton of people that want to ask questions, we will try to get to you. So it's we're like six questions in, they're all fluff questions. Kobe visibly like shaking and nervous and like really excited. He said like the win was, more, he was happier with this than any of the five championships. I don't know if I believe him or not, but thrilled to be there was great. So we're asking questions, we're asking questions, and they're calling on the numbers for who's going to ask the next question, and I keep waiting. I'm number 24, conveniently enough. And finally, they were like, they, they get me in, in the queue. They're like, all right, in 24, I'll ask the next question. I have a microphone in my hand. Before I ask the question, the moderator says, I'm sorry, everyone. And I'm like, oh, no, I'm not going to get to ask the question. And she says, I'm sorry, everyone, but we only, I'm being told we have a short on time. We only have time for one more question. And I'm like, yes, how lucky am I? Kobe, what's up? Dan Stanzik, ESPN Radio. And I asked Kobe the question I thought should have been the first question asked. He referenced the shut up and dribble comments by Laura Ingram of Fox News. She had those for LeBron after he made comments about President Trump. And so I asked Kobe why he made those, why he referenced those comments and what he thought of LeBron's style of talking about politics, which is so contrary to Michael Jordan's style, Kobe's hero, where he wouldn't talk about politics at all. And Kobe had a thoughtful answer. And sure enough, as the night went on, I keep hearing people doing live reports and they keep referencing Kobe Bryant in the interview room being asked about the shut up and dribble comments and i'm like i'm the one that asked that question and then sure enough i go in the hallway like 15 20 minutes after i ask the question i see adnan coming back from the bathroom furiously we're hanging out i'm telling him the story who should walk by us but kobe bryant himself holding his oscar he stops we shake hands we're talking we're taking pictures with kobe it was unbelievable 
Yeah. See, we, see what happens when you come uh, a long way from hotel access? <laughs> this is what happens when you get more than hotel access. Oh. We literally, we see him, and then Dan goes, because there's, you know, the security is always tight. Woman's carrying Kobe around, and Dan goes, ah, oh, come on, get in there. So we just go, yo, Kobe. And Dan's right, he came out right away. Like, hey. Dropped about six F-bombs in about 20 seconds, just... Over. Blank, yeah, blank, yeah. We're like, yeah, that's awesome, man. Can we, yeah, can we get a picture? We're like, yeah, all right. So he was awesome, man. He was so pumped. He was so cool. Uh, so this is great. Listen, for those who wonder the intersection of sports and movies, we're here at Kobe Bryant won an Oscar. Mount Rushmore. Very, very tough here. Listen, if you're ever taking a film class, you know how hard it is when you're talking about the greatest foreign films of all time. And I know Joey's going to somehow find a way to get Itu Mama Tambien on there so he can use that one. Uh, honorable mentions, The Skin I Live In, just a, a darkly funny, demented movie starring Antonio Banderas. I'm thinking about Banderas because he's you know making the talk shows right now. First ever Academy Award nomination for Pain and Glory, which is a foreign film in its own right from Pedro Almodovar. So uh, Skin I Live In is an honorable mention, as is Old Boy. Incredible film, I mean, you'll never forget after seeing Old Boy, Bicycle Thieves. I had at least mentioned it from DeSica. Wildly influential film. But my top four, Mount Rushmore, the greatest foreign films of all time. Fellini's Eight and a Half. It's quite simply one of the greatest films of all time. I mean, this is about a director coming off the massive success of La Dolce Vita. So he said, how do I follow this up? Well, I'll make a movie about a director dealing with this existential crisis. And so Fellini, who was known for being very autobiographical in his films, pours his heart into a movie and lays bare his soul as uh, the man who would always play him, Marcello Mastroianni, is basically playing Fellini by proxy. And it deals with all of the issues and themes of Fellini's life, uh, love of women, Catholicism, guilt, sin, flights of fancy. I mean, it is just uh, the great irony of all time, which is a film which is about a guy and a director who is creatively bankrupt, ends up being one of the most creative films of all time and is deeply life-affirming. Eight and a Half, quite simply, is one of my favorite movies of all time. So obviously that is a no-brainer. Ikiru is my favorite Kurosawa film. This is about a man who finds that he's dying of stomach cancer and realizes he has so many regrets in his life. He goes out to do something right with his life. The final 10 minutes is about as poignant and powerful as any film that I can ever remember seeing. Obviously, other great choices from Kurosawa would include uh, Rashomon or Seven Samurai, which are among my favorites as well. But I will go with Ikiru because it doesn't get nearly enough love as I would like to see. Continuing the theme of Japanese films, Tokyo Story from Yasujiro Ozu. Ozu's films are always about family. He had that famous low camera, which was positioned just the way the, the Japanese sit rather than sitting on chairs. So his camera mimicked that style. Very much believed in mise-en-scene, did not have many tracking shots, did not believe in a busy camera. It was very much that the actors focus on that. I don't know how Ozu did it, but he would take these elementary and straightforward, believed to be simplistic stories, and they'd end up being just these devastating domestic dramas and such powerful movies. The cover alone of uh, the Japanese girl with a tear in her eye. I mean, Tokyo Story is a profound film. I don't use that very often, but it's a profound film about fathers and sons and daughters and families and generations and passing on love. And it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful film if you haven't seen it. Tokyo Story is also one of my favorite movies. And Secret in Their Eyes, those are my favorite movies of the decade. That one, uh, best foreign film, El uh, Secretos de Ojos, uh, great, great film, Ricardo Duran. It uh, kind of combines a bunch of different elements. It's a police procedural 
Uh, it's a thriller. It's a romantic drama. It's a love story. It's set in Argentina. It won the Best Foreign Film Academy Award back in 2009. I feel like in many ways, you know, even though it won the Oscar for Best Foreign Film, I feel like it's underrated. I wish more people had seen it, more people know about it. But uh, there's a lot to love about The Secret in Their Eyes, from the cinematography to the dialogue. The acting is top-notch, and the ending is one of my you know, top 10 favorite endings of all time. Just a beautiful open-ended ending. So to recap, my Mount Rushmore of foreign films, I mean, some heavyweights here, Fellini's Eight and a Half, Kurosawa's Ikiru, Ozu's Tokyo Story, and The Secret in Their Eyes. Well, I'm just going to back you up and say that old boy um, would be an honorable mention for me as well. That movie is dark and so, so good. Um, I'm going to throw on Itamama Tambien, like you said, Alfonso Coron. Nice. Then I'm going to go with Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon from 2000. Oh, yeah. That I just rewatched that recently, and it is so, so good. And then just because of its influence on pop culture and film afterwards, I'm going to go with 1927's Metropolis by Fritz Lang and that whole German era pre-World War II. And then one of my favorite vampire movies, horror movie, Swedish movie, it's called Let the Right One In, which is just about this boy who finds a vampire that he falls in love with. So those are my four. And that foreign film, much better than the remake, right? 100%. I believe it was the same director, and I believe he did a shot-for-shot remake of it, but definitely better than the American version. All right, good stuff. I like the fact we went on some different choices there. Particularly, I love the Fritz Lang mention. I mean, M is unreal, but with uh, Peter Lorre playing a serial killer back in 1931. Also, it should have been another honorable mention, Pan's Labyrinth, just a wild the original film there from Guillermo del Toro. All right, we got a lot covered there with Best Foreign Films. Now it's time for a little Total Recall. All right, so the 1996 Oscars, which are films from 1995, good year in cinema. Joe, give us the nominees for Best Picture. Braveheart, Apollo 13, Babe, Il Postino, The Postman, and Sense and Sensibility. Love the fact that Babe was nominated for Best Picture. That'll do, pig. That'll do. George Miller. That's right. Mad Max, Fury Road. That's unbelievable. He was one of the producers along with Doug Mitchell and Bill Miller. I know all the Scots are going to get mad at me. I'm not going to go with Braveheart. I love Dio Postino. Gorgeous film. Mario Cecchi Gori was the posthumous nomination. Vittorio Cecchi, Gori, and Gaetano Danielle were all the producers. Amazing love story. Very simple story, but a guy, just a simpleton. Guy who was normally ignored by people. Massimo Troisi. He falls in love with Maria Grazia Cucinotta. Il Postino, one of those beautiful, beautiful Italian films. I mean, the cinematography is incredible. I didn't realize it was actually nominated for Best Picture. I know Teresa was nominated for Best Actor. I thought he was, but uh, we'll get to that in a second. More importantly, I'm going Il Postino. I would have liked to see a foreign film win Best Picture rather than Braveheart. I completely agree with you, though I'm going to go with nice. Apollo 13 instead, just because of the scale and scope of it. All right, fair enough. How about Best Director? We have Mel Gibson, Braveheart, Chris Noonan, Babe, Tim Robbins, Dead Man Walking, Mike Figgis, Leaving Las Vegas, and Michael Radford for Il Postino, The Postman. 
I would have gone with Mike Figgis for Leaving Las Vegas because that was such a bold film and the way it was shot and just really had that element of cinema verite. I mean, it felt like a documentary at times. That's how hard-hitting the realism was, you know, about this alcoholic falling in love with a hooker. Honorable mention of Tim Robbins for Dead Man Walking, an actor showing his directorial touch. Obviously, Gibson did a good job, certainly with the action scenes and Braveheart proved that he was a, a director of some renown. But I would have gone with Mike Figgis for Leaving Las Vegas. I love it. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to go with Chris Noonan, Babe, just because it's one of my favorite all-time movies. All right, how about Best Actor? Nicolas Cage, Leaving Las Vegas, Richard Dreyfuss, Mr. Holland's Opus, Anthony Hopkins for Nixon, Sean Penn, Dead Man Walking, and Massimo Troisi for Il Postino. I mean, I love Massimo Troisi. I mean, he was dead. Posthumous nomination playing Mario Ropolo, but I already gave it Best Picture. And I gave Best Director to Figgis. Of course, Nicolas Cage won the Oscar, and I think that was the right choice. I mean, he was unforgettable, uh, based on a true story, but a guy who just wants to kill himself, Ben Sanderson. So he just wants to drink himself to death. And Cage was able to have that Nick Cage-type weirdness, but it was before it kind of became too unhinged. You know, it dealt well with the character. What he really nailed in the, in the acting is that, you know, the alcoholic is never more fun than when he's drunk. Everyone says you got to stop drinking, but he's actually the most fun when he's drunk. That's when he has a good time, but then eventually he drinks too much. Obviously, he can't control it, and you never really dwell on what happened to him. You know, Figgis doesn't deal too much with exposition. What led this guy to this point? You don't need to know. You just know that he wants to kill himself, and this is the situation with which he he finds himself. It's incredibly dark, uh, but I thought Cage was amazing. But all these, I mean, listen, Dreyfus. I mean, that's one of the great teacher movies of all time. You think about teachers and, you know, giving back to the community. Mr. Holland's Opus, he nailed that. Anthony Hopkins playing Nixon. God, it was uh, I mean, Owen Gleiberman of EW. He called Nixon the best picture of the year. Hopkins played him with this great Shakespearean, you know, flourishes to him. I remember Gleiberman said that, you know, Olivier would always work from the outside in. You always think of method acting inside out. Well, you know, Olivier would go outside in. So does Hopkins. You know, worry about the hair first and the prosthetics and the wardrobe. And then from the outside in, you'll find the actor and, and Hopkins didn't necessarily look like Richard Nixon, but I, I mean, he was amazing showing his paranoia. And then Sean Penn as Matthew Ponsolet. I mean, you think about how deep one must go in terms of forgiveness. Sean Penn really, uh, was, that was an exercise in empathy, the way he's playing this death row inmate. The, all those actors were great, but I think the Academy was right. Nick Cage was the right choice. 110% agree. Love Nick Cage in this movie. Love Nick Cage generally. Going with Nick Cage for sure. I love it. How about Best Actress? Susan Sarandon for Dead Man Walking, Elizabeth Shue, Leaving Las Vegas, Sharon Stone for Casino, Meryl Streep, The Bridges of Madison County, and Emma Thompson, Sense and Sensibility. Uh, I never saw Sense and Sensibility. I'm sure it's great. Emma Thompson's always really good. I did like The Bridges of Madison County. I would, wouldn't think I'd be, uh, I wouldn't say I was enraptured by this middle-aged romance, but I actually uh, thought Meryl Streep was very good playing the Italian woman, Francesca Johnson, falling in love with Clint. The other three is what it comes down to. I had no qualms with Susan Sarandon winning again. That's an exercise in uh, empathy. Sister Helen Prejean trying to show uh, forgiveness to a guy who's on death row. She really humanized that character. Elizabeth Shue, unforgettable in leaving Las Vegas. Performance of her career as Sarah. I mean, this is about as big a cliche as it gets. A hooker with a heart of gold. Um, but she made it her own. But my winner would be Sharon Stone for Casino as Ginger McKenna. Yes, at times it is over the top, and certainly she's got some hysterical scenes, but she's also in many ways 
you know, she's the, the, the spitfire of that film. You know, this was only five years after Goodfellas. And so in some ways, Scorsese was criticized for kind of cribbing from himself and being a little bit derivative. And, you know, you see De Niro in it. It was a different role for De Niro in the fact that Ace was so um, jealous and such. But, I mean, Pesci is literally doing the exact same thing he did in Goodfellas. He's just this raving psycho. So Sharon Stone actually was the breath of fresh air in the movie. He hadn't seen her movie like uh, Casino before. Even her entrance, you know, in slow motion, she's throwing the chips up in the air. You can see why a guy like Ace would completely fall ahead over heels for Sharon Stone. Not only is she beautiful, but, you know, sexy and seductive and all the rest of it. And uh, I would go with Sharon Stone for best actress for Casino. I agree. I'm going to go with Sharon Stone, too. I think a case could be made for Meryl Streep. Um, but that that's what they say every Oscar. So I'm going to I'm going to go with Sharon Stone for sure. Yeah, I was about to say, you could always make a case for her. How about Best Supporting Actor? We have Kevin Spacey, The Unusual Suspects, James Cromwell, Babe, Ed Harris, Apollo 13, Brad Pitt, 12 Monkeys, and Tim Roth, Rob Roy. Again, all great actors. Never saw Rob Roy, but I love Tim Roth because of work in Tarantino. Brad Pitt, you know, at this point would have been nice. It was rarely even get a nomination, but 12 Monkeys playing that... That psycho Jeffrey Goins, those crazy eyes. Ed Harris, I'd forgotten. And after just seeing him in To Kill a Mockingbird, I didn't realize he was actually nominated for Best Supporting Actor for Paul 13. Ed Harris in a space movie. You can't go wrong. Cromwell is amazing because, uh, again, you're dealing with a bunch of pigs here, and he is the, he is the human element in, as Farmer Arthur Hoggett. That'll do, pig. That'll do. But this was a no-brainer. Spacey was incredible as Verbal Kent. He walked away with that film. Yeah, that was a great, great role for him. But I, like I said, Babe is one of my favorite movies, so I'm going with That Will Do Pig and uh, James Cromwell. That'll James be. Cromwell turned 80 years old on Monday. That's amazing. You're going to go with Cromwell over Spacey. That is a gigantic upset, Joe, but I like it. <laughs> this Oscar voting body's won. I'll say that, yeah. <laughs> Supporting actress. We have Mira Servino from Mighty Aphrodite, Joan Allen for Nixon, Kathleen Quinlan for Apollo 13, Mar Winningham for Georgia, and Kate Winslet, Sense and Sensibility. Never saw Sense and Sensibility. Can't speak to Kate Winslet. I'm sure Winningham was fine in Georgia, but I have no concept of what that film is about. Kathleen Quinlan was fine in Apollo 13. I like her because she's friends with Pacino. There's this great Pacino documentary. I think it was on Annie. Kathleen Quinlan loves been telling stories about acting with him back in the 80s. Mira Servita, Mighty Aphrodite. I mean, it's nice to see a comedic role get recognized, but she's never really fulfilled the promise of that performance. And I didn't get the sense that really was Oscar-worthy. I would have gone with Joan Allen playing Pat Nixon. I mean, we always focus on Tricky Dick. How about being married to Tricky Dick? The role of Pat Nixon, the conscience of the movie. Uh, Joan Allen's an excellent actress. It was, uh, you know, she's marvelous in The Contender. I would have voted for Joan Allen to win for, for Nixon. I like that rationale a lot. I'm, I'm going to go with Mira Servino, but you make a great point. Okay, how about uh, best original screenplay? No brainer here. The Usual Suspects by Christopher McQuarrie. Braveheart. We have Mighty Aphrodite. Nixon. Toy Story. And that's it. I said no-brainer, but now I, I know you're going to go with Toy Story. And that is a really original <laughs> script because now I think about it, you know what? They should get some props. There's just way too many damn writers. Josh Whedon, Andrew Stanton, Joel Cohen, Alex Sokolow, John Lasseter, Pete Doctor, and Joe Ranft. I mean, that's insane. Of course you can give it to you. you got eight writers on the thing. No way. Um, again, Nixon is amazing. Oliver Stone. God, what a movie. Three hours plus of just the, the worst president in American history. But no-brainer. I'll stick with it. Usual suspects. Christopher McQuarrie. Who saw it coming? Verbal Kent. I'm telling you, it's Kaiser Sose. I mean, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. There's so many great one-liners in that. You know, give me the keys, you 
blah, 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 blah. Christopher McQuarrie for the usual suspects. I'll give him best original screenplay. That was the winner, by the way. So he, I deserved, I think he deserved to win. I agree with you. I will, I, I mean, I'm going to go Toy Story because you know me. I love animated movies, but uh, Usual Suspects is one of like the greatest whodunit movies ever. And the script is incredible. Yeah. All right. Last one. Best adapted screenplay. Sense and Sensibility. Apollo 13. Babe. Leaving Las Vegas. Il Postino. So the winner was actually Emma Thompson. Did not know that. Emma Thompson is an Academy Award winner, not just for acting, but for writing. She won for that screenplay. Wow, I had no idea she adapted the Jane Austen novels. Congrats to Emma Thompson. I don't think she should have won, though, although I didn't see the movie, so I can't really speak to it. Paul 13, yeah, it's well done. Lots of technical jargon there. Um, I'm leaning a bit leaving Las Vegas, but I already gave Figgis best director. So that means it's down to two. It's either going to be Babe or Il Postino, I'll give it to Il Postino because I gave them best picture and I'll give them best screenplay. The script by Michael Radford, Anna Pavignano, uh, Furio Scarpelli, not to be confused with Furio from The Sopranos, Giacomo Scarpelli, and Massimo Troisi for the posthumous nomination based on the novel Ardiente Pacientia by Antonio Scarmetta. So there's a, talk about a lot of writers. God, they had uh, five writers for the script for Il Postino. That would have been my winner, but I have no issue, Joe, with you saying George Miller should have won an Oscar for Babe. Good, because I'm going to go with George Miller for the movie Babe. Though Il Postino, like, who doesn't love Pablo Neruda, too, you know? And it, yeah, if he so. was in your corner and he was saying, hey, this is how you speak the language of love, I would, I'd listen. I'd at least take a few bits from it. So, <laughs> totally That's a good pull to you. I, I hope somebody, after listening to this podcast, goes and watches Il Postino, because Joe is right. The, the great poet Pablo Neruda ends up uh, influencing this postman as he's in love with this gorgeous woman. I hopefully uh, Pablo Neruda fans out there are going to check out El Postino. Great score, by the way, too. The music to El Postino is amazing. I know we don't revisit the, the scores as well when it comes to Total Recall. All right. Thank you so much to everybody, as always, for listening. Please do subscribe on Apple Podcasts, rate and review. Uh, next week, we'll be back with reviews of three films, including Richard Jewell, Kathy Bates nominated for Best Supporting Actress. So I'll review Clint Eastwood's film in addition to an Academy Award nominated documentary, The Edge of Documentary, The Edge of uh, Democracy, excuse me, and an Academy an award nominated best animated film I Lost My Body those three reviews are coming up next week including our special guest the New York Times film critic Manola Dargas so we got a great episode coming up next week on Cinephile I'll be off to Super Bowl for uh, watch the Chiefs and it should be a lot of fun here in Miami but we're talking movies here in Cinephile so I'll talk to you next time until then I'll see you at the movies